0: And as we're turning there, so a couple weeks ago, Deborah bought me a new iPad for my birthday. And I'm very thankful because my old iPad, it was like the iPad Air 2, second generation. And I couldn't any longer, it was only six or eight years old, but I couldn't update Windows to the latest iOS. So it was just, it wasn't supported, it was getting slower and slower. It took like 20 seconds to open, you know, an app. And so she bought me a new iPad Air 5th generation. It's like lightning fast. And I love it. And to go along with that, so my daughter Amber and her family bought me this nice new cover. Which it said it was genuine leather leather and to like reinforce the quality of the material, the packaging came with this little patch of leather in there and they wanted me to see how, you know, the the manufacturer wanted me to see how nice it is and I thought, wow, genuine leather. My old one was just like vinyl and I thought, that's pretty cool. But what you might not know is that genuine leather is not real leather. (laughs) Did you realize that? It's, it's not real leather, leather the way you might think. It's processed leather. They take little leather bits and pieces and they mix other stuff with it. And then they, they bond it all together. And then they stamp a fake leather grain on it and color it. And they call it genuine leather. Well, that's kind of missing. I mean, it's kind of like those, you know, the, when you go to McDonald's or wherever and you get those chicken nuggets just those are not real pieces of chicken like they're real chicken but it's like all ground up and then molded together to look like a piece of chicken and it's it's really not nor are the McRibs I'm sorry to burst your bubble but genuine leather is not real leather and I hope I'm not ruining anybody's Christmas here (laughs) like honey I bought you a genuine leather belt or purse but you know top grain leather patent leather it's not real leather the only leather that's real leather the way we think of it like whole tanned leather hide is what's known as I got to get the right nail full grain leather full grain that doesn't sound nearly as good as genuine leather but yet that's the only real leather full grain leather Leather. So what does that have to do with the message? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> I just needed to give these people time to get back in from the break. No, actually, okay, maybe it is related. As we're going through our series in the books, the epistles of John, we're seeing again and again it's talking about what genuine Christianity looks like. And it's comparing it to false teachers, false believers, false prophets. And so it's building this contrast. And, you know, as we go through this, there's a question that God wants us to consider. Am I a genuine Christian? What does that look like? What does a genuine Christian say and do? How can I know? Well, the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John are written so that genuine Christians may know with absolute certainty that they are saved and have eternal life. Remember the key verse, 1st John five thirteen. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know with absolute certainty that you have eternal life. And so the message this morning continues with this theme. The title is Absolute Certainty of Our Freedom from Sin. And it's a short text, but a longer outline. It has five parts. And I'm going to have to bounce around a little bit because John did not follow my logical outline. I don't know why. But first we'll look at the nature of sin in verse 4. Then the nature of Satan in verse 8. Then the nature of sinners in four, 6 and 8. The nature of the Savior in verses 5 and 8. And then the nature of the saved in verses 6, 9, and 10. So we're going to be bouncing around again a little bit. Because again, John didn't follow my outline. But we're going to read through it first. And then we'll break it down. So I'm reading. I'll be reading this morning from the 1984 NIV translation. And it says this. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. Because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God. Nor is anyone who does not love his brother. Man, that's a hard-hitting passage, isn't it? And if you find it a bit confusing, you're not alone. Even Bible scholars do not completely agree on the interpretation of this passage. And it can leave a person with a lot of questions and a lot of uncertainty. It can leave a person wondering, am I really a genuine Christian? Am I saved? Because of the things you find here. So I hope that as we work through this, we can clear it up. But the big question after reading this should be this. Does a genuine Christian continue to sin? Does a genuine Christian continue to sin? Because verse 6 says, No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. And verse 9 says, No one who is born of God will continue to sin. Now, if that's saying that a genuine Christian does not sin, then I'm in trouble. Because I do continue to sin. I'm not proud of it. But I do. And, in, and I'm pretty certain every one of you does too. And we're, look what John wrote earlier in his letter in chapter 1 verse 8. He said, if, he said, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Even the apostle Paul in Romans 7 said, for I have a desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. He says, for what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. So does our text contradict these passages? Was John maybe just getting a little old when he wrote this? Maybe he missed the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Was he off base? No. This is the inspired, inerrant word of God. But the question remains, does a genuine Christian continue to sin? And the answer is yes and no. What do you mean by that? Yes and no. Well, that's what I hope to show you, but not until the end. It's a cliffhanger. You know what they say about a cliffhanger. I can't tell you it's a cliffhanger. (laughs) But seriously... We have some groundwork to lay before we can really effectively address that question. So let's look first at the nature of sin in verse 4. It says, Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Probably the simplest definition of sin is right here in 1 John. At its very core, sin is breaking the moral law of God. If you have an old King James version, it, it says, for sin is the transgression of the law. We don't use that word transgression anymore, but I think it's a really good word. It means trans, across, gression, to go. To go across the law or to go against The law, you can think of it as crossing the line. Romans 4.15 says, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. That's because there's not a line that we are not to go across. It may still be sin, but it's not transgression if there's not law there. Listen to what Romans 5.13 says, before the law was given, sin was in the world but sin is not taken into account where there is no law it's a little bit like a foul line in sports if there's no foul line there's no foul but if the rules say this is the foul line you cross this line you transgress the line you go across it you you commit a foul And so that's kind of how it is with the word of God. So to sin, or the old word, transgression, is to violate the moral law of God. It doesn't have to be an outward action either. It can be like an inward attitude. I heard about a little girl named Judy. And she's driving with her father down the highway. And she undoes her seatbelt and stands up in the car. And he says, young lady, you sit down and put on your seatbelt right away. And she goes, no, daddy. And he goes, I'm telling you again, sit down and put on your seatbelt. She still refused. And he said, if you don't sit down right now and put on your seatbelt, I'm going to pull over and I'm going to spank you. And so she reluctantly sits down and puts on her seatbelt. And she says, okay, daddy, but I'm standing up on the inside. (laughs) That's an inward attitude. And both transgress the law, both are sin. Scripture is really clear about that, the outward action and the inward attitude. So to sin is to violate the moral law of God outwardly or inwardly. And John was writing this letter at a time where there were all these false teachers and they were saying the law didn't matter. One false doctrine said that because Christ fulfilled the Old Testament law, Christians can do whatever they want. There's no moral law that God expects believers to obey. Well, this was known as antinomianism. No law. And and then a variant said that the body and spirit are separate. So what the body does doesn't affect the spirit. You can sin all you want. See, people were looking for a way to rationalize their sin. John's making the point that the law matters. See, a genuine Christian cannot practice lawlessness because they live with an ongoing awareness of God and his law. His spirit, his seed, it calls it, is in them. David said, your law is my delight. He said, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. You say, well, that's Old Testament, Paul. Okay. Well, the Apostle Paul said in Romans 7, for my inner, in my inner being, I delight in God's law. So to live as if there is no law is to live as if there is no God. To live in lawlessness, that's antithetical to the Christian life. And John's making that point. So the nature of, Of sin is lawlessness. Let's skip ahead to verse 8 and look at the nature of Satan. Verse 8 says, He who does what is sinful is of the devil. Because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason God, the son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. So something you got to know. Satan is not eternal like God. He was a created being. But when this says, since the beginning, that's not talking about when Satan was initially created. Because Ezekiel says that he was, when he was created, he was the model of perfection. Full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Man, what a description. And it goes on to say that he was blameless in all of his ways from the day he was created. That's in Ezekiel 28. But it goes on and it says, until wickedness was found in you. That's the beginning that our verse is talking about. When the devil rebelled against God and became the personification of evil. This was his first act of sin. And it says he hasn't stopped since. It's been ongoing, continuous, perpetual rebellion against God, which is sin. But compare this to verse 5 where it says that, of Jesus that in him was no sin. So the fact is, Satan hates God. He hates him. And so he hates everything God loves and he loves everything God hates. You know what? That means Satan hates you. He hates you. His his goal is to destroy you. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy No wonder he's called the adversary. He opposes God and he opposes you and me. Listen to this definition from Wikipedia of the devil. I think they had a a really good definition. They said, um, the devil is a supernatural entity that is the personification of evil and the enemy of God and humankind. I think that captures it pretty good. Do you remember back during the first Gulf War? Saddam Hussein was defeated, but as his army was retreating, they went about setting fire to all of the oil wells, hundreds of them. They blew them up, and it was what he called his scorched earth policy. And this was his thought, if I can't have it for myself, I'm going to ruin it for someone else. They're not going to have it either. Well, that's a lot like Satan. See, he was defeated at the cross. But he's not yet destroyed. That won't come until after the millennium. He's defeated. But what he's trying to do now is to destroy everything that God loves. If if he can't have us, well, he doesn't want God to either. So how does the devil try to destroy us? Well, he can't make us sin. Don't fall for the popular saying, oh, the devil made me do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's an excuse. The devil cannot make you sin. He doesn't have that ability, but he can tempt you to sin. Listen to this verse in, Ch- in James chapter 1, verse 14. It says, but each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he's dragged away and enticed. So we have this sin nature And the devil comes along. And these are two, these are like hunting and fishing. These are outdoorsmen, outdoors person (laughs) words, dragged away and enticed. The first one uh, relates to being lured into a trap with something appealing. And the second one is a phrase used to talk about baiting a hook. And so how does he tempt us? He dangles in front of us things that appeal to our sin nature, but are across the line. That are contrary to the moral law of God. And he knows we all have these weak spots. And they can be different for each one of us. I'm not tempted to gamble. But there's other things that get my attention. I'm not really tempted to alcoholism. But there's other things that could tempt me. And Satan knows. Now he can't. He's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at once. But along with him is a whole host of demons that do his work. And tempt mankind. And how does that destroy us? Well, God is holy and sin separates us from God. So when he tempts us, it creates separation between us and God. So the nature of sin is lawlessness. The nature of Satan is to oppose God and to destroy the things that God loves. Including you. What about the nature of sinners? That's next. We're going to see that in verses 4, 6, and 8. Let's go all the way back to chapter 2, verse 8. It says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We're lying. If we say we do not have sin, we're lying. Every person has sinned. I heard about a third grade teacher who was asking her class, who's the youngest sinner in the Bible? And one little boy's hand shot up. He said, I know, it's Job. He cursed the day he was born. <laughs> well, infants can't talk, but this illustrates a point. I think if they could, I wonder if they wouldn't be cursing a little bit. Look at how mad. You see how mad they get? What are you people doing to me? It's cold out here. Turn off those lights. It, 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 I want the dark. Yeah, If a child could curse... I almost kind of think he would, because listen, listen to what David writes, this sobering commentary in Psalm 51, verse 5. He says, surely I was sinful at birth, and then it gets even worse. He continues, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, Ooh, if we could only talk. (laughs) Who knows what we'd be saying. Not only were we sinful at birth, but we were sinful before we were even born. Now, what did you and I have to do with that? Nothing, really. It was passed down to us from Adam. But make no mistake, if we were in Adam's place, we would have done it too. But it was passed down. It's what's known as original sin. I remember a memorable sermon by our former pastor, Walt Barrett. He said this. He said, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Think about that. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. I'm not a Geico customer. And I'm not promoting them. But they have some pretty creative ads on TV. One of them in one of them there's a group of teenagers and they're outside the spooky spooky looking house and one of them says let's hide in the attic and I said no in the basement and a third one says why can't we just get in the running car and and a, a, a guy next to her replies are you crazy he says let's hide behind the chainsaws <laughs> and they all get on board yeah yeah smart good good well Then the commentator comes on and says, if you're in a horror movie, you make poor decisions. It's what you do. (laughs) If you want to save 15% or more on car insurance, you call Geico. It's what you do. Well, probably one of my favorite Geico commercials is this one. It's in a peanut butter factory, and the whole automation line has just gone crazy. There's jars flying everywhere, and there's peanut butter squirting all over, and the poor supervisor, he doesn't know what to do. And so he goes up to this line of workers and he says, who's responsible for this? And one of the ladies points across the room and there, on top of the production line is this goat with its little hairnet on. <laughs> and the supervisor looks at this goat in disappointment and says, Rick. <laughs> His name is Rick. And, and the best part, the goat lets out this rebellious <laughs> like that. And then the commentator comes on, if something goes wrong, you find a scapegoat. It's what you do. (laughs) If you want to save 15% of your car insurance, you call Geico, it's what you do. Well, I think Geico, oh, and and as the goat is, Rick walking away, the supervisor says, Rick, don't walk away from me. And you hear another (laughs) This rebellious little goat. I think Geico could, Run an ad that says, if you're a sinner, you sin. It's what you do. And going back to what Walt said, that's basically it. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It's what we do. So what is the nature of sinners? Well, our text has some pretty sobering things to say about it. Verse 4 Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. We saw that. Verse 6. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Verse 8. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Yikes. So does this contradict the passages that say we all sin? Or are anyone is anyone who sins just not a genuine Christian because they've sinned? Well, what's not apparent in most translations, including the NIV, is that there's a Greek word in there that precedes this word sin and precedes righteousness. It's, it's six times in our passage, and it's this word poieo. And poieo means to make or to do, but... On the authority of many, many Greek authors, or Greek scholars, and I am not one, this word along with the present tense of the verb conveys the idea of a continual, habitual practice. And what makes it difficult to see this word poieo is it's not even translated directly in most translations. In fact, it's absent from verse 4 in the NIV altogether, even though it's right there before the word for sin. So the NIV reads, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. It would more literally read, everyone who continually, habitually sins breaks the law. In fact, continual, habitual sin is lawlessness. Because the word is in the verse twice. The New King James says, whoever commits sin, they translate that word commit. Probably the ESV does the best job of capturing it. And if you have an ESV translation, it says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. See, an unregenerate or an unsaved person doesn't just sin. They make a practice of it. They do it continually, willfully, with little or no regard for God's law. And so the NIV carries this thought forward and posits it in verse 6. Even though the word poieo isn't in verse 6. But the NIV reads, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. Poieo. Well, no, actually that word's not in there. But that's the, they're carrying that meaning forward. And the NIV says, no one who continues to sin has either seen him or know him. So again, together it's portraying an ongoing habitual practice. Skip ahead to verse 8. He who does what is sinful, that's a word again, is of the devil. Because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And here again, the ESV says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So it's, it's speaking of those whose lives are marked... By a continual, willful, habitual practice of yielding to the devil's temptation. I'm sure you've heard the saying, like father, like son. I mean, it alludes to the fact that children often resemble their parents. Not only in appearance, but a lot of times in behavior and demeanor. Take a look at some of these pictures. Tom Hanks and his son Colin. Or Reese Witherspoon and her daughter, Ava. Or, look at this one, Gordon Ramsay and his son, Jack. They look a lot alike, almost identical, don't they? They probably share some of the same mannerisms, too. Because they hang out a lot together. They spend a lot of time together. So they probably sound a little bit alike, similar dialects, kind of do some of the same things and gestures. Well, in a similar way, Spiritual children bear resemblance to their father. That's a point that this passage is emphasizing. Listen, listen to what Jesus said in a conversation with the Pharisees. This is tough. He said the Pharisees are these religious, self-righteous, religious leaders. And Jesus says, if you were Abraham's children, then you would do the things Abraham did. You'd resemble him. As it is, you're determined to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the things your own father does. And then he says, you belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and a father of lies. And he's given birth to you. (laughs) You're just like your father, the devil. Those are strong words. And did you catch what else it says? It says you act like your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. You're following his agenda for your life, not God's. Now, this is not to say that we're saved by what we do, but our behavior bears witness to who our Father is, whether that's our Heavenly Father or whether that's the devil. So think about your own actions. Who do we resemble more, the Lord Jesus or the devil? Who are we yielding to? Whose agenda are we following for our lives? Whose will do we desire to carry out the most? See, sinners, as defined in this passage, are those who disregard the moral law of God. And they continually, habitually, perpetually yield to the will of the devil and not the will of God because they are children of the devil. That's what this is saying. That's pretty strong. But that's the nature of sinners. Now let's look at the nature of the Savior In verses 5 and 8, it says, But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Jesus didn't come into the world just to be a good moral teacher, or just to demonstrate the power of God through miracles, and he did a lot of those. He didn't even come just to start a new religion. His primary purpose for coming into the world was to take away sin. Not to cover it up like the Old Testament sacrifices. Hebrews says they could never take away a single sin. All they could do was cover it up and point forward to the one who would take it away once for all. When John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, look, the Lamb of God who what? Takes away The sin of the world. We have no ability to take away our own sin. We can try to avoid it. But we can't take it away. It would be like scrubbing a dirt floor to try to make it clean. In Africa, I bet a lot of the floors were dirt. Can you imagine scrubbing it? Maybe you throw some water on it. I got to get this floor clean. The more you scrub it, the more dirt you have. You can't clean a dirt floor. You need a whole new floor. You need transformation. You got to get rid of that and get something new. God doesn't clean up our sins. He takes them away from us. And he transforms us in our inner being. Scripture says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. Praise God. Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, that's just a a phrase to say you can't get any further away than this. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. So, verse 8 in our text says, the reason the Son of God appeared, first of all, it was to take away sin. And verse 8 says, also to destroy the work of the devil. He didn't come to destroy the devil. Not the first time anyway. That's coming up. He came to destroy the work of the devil. What is the work of the devil right now? To constantly lead you and me into sin. To tempt us. To try to, try to lure us into that trap. Lure us into that, under that hook. Lure us across the line. Which represents the moral law of God. So Jesus came to take away our sin. And take away the ability of the devil to constantly lead us into sin. I think it's important to know that our salvation in Christ doesn't happen all at once. And you might say, wait a minute, Paul. I thought I was saved at the moment I surrendered my life to Jesus and placed my faith in his finished work on the cross. If you did that, you were saved then. You were saved from the penalty of sin. And that's the first P. I want to give you three Ps. You were saved from the penalty of sin. And that was immediate. Jesus said in John 5, 24, I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. The penalty of sin has been taken away. You were saved from the penalty of all sin, past, present, future, in the moment you believed. But the work's not done. Jesus also came to save us from the power of sin. That's the second P. And that's what we see in verse 8 where he says he came to destroy the devil's work, to take away the power of sin, the grip that it has on us in this life. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, say it this way. For the grace of God that brings salvation as appeared to all men, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we await for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. That's the first thing. Redeem us from all wickedness. And to purify for himself a people who are, who are his very own eager to do what is good. That's the second thing. To take away the power of Satan to tempt us. To give us a new heart. A new desire to follow the Lord. How did he do that? Through the Holy Spirit that he placed within us at the moment we are saved. We don't have to yield to every temptation of the devil. The Bible says that he who is in us, the spirit, is greater than he who is in the world, the devil. God's broken that power. And so as a result, God's people are to be eager to do good. He's given us a new heart, a new creation, a new Holy Spirit within us. So over time, a person becomes more like Christ. I said again and again. It's not about perfection, but progress. Bible, the big big Christian use word sanctification. Becoming more and more and more like Christ. Because we have within us the power to say no to the devil. And the temptation and the flesh. So he saves us from the penalty of sin. That's immediate. He saves us from the power of sin. That's a process. But there's a future part. Of salvation yet. That's still not finished. Because we live in a body of flesh. In a messed up world. That's filled with temptation and sin. And 1 Peter 1.5. Speaks of our future salvation. It speaks of quote. Those who through faith. Are shielded by God's power. Until the coming. Of the salvation. That is ready to be revealed. In the last time. The coming of the salvation. What is that? Well, that's when we're saved from the very presence of sin. That's the third P, the presence of sin. It happens on the day of God's judgment when those who are saved are separated from those who are not. And the devil is destroyed. Only then will there be no sin and no temptation to sin. All the pain, suffering of sin will be gone. It'll be behind us. This is the final, ultimate stage in God's salvation. Philippians 1, 6, you know this verse, you began a good work in you, will carry it on until the, until, carried on to completion until the day of Christ, when he returns to save us from the presence of sin. But in the meantime, here we are, in a broken, fallen world, and we're broken, fallen people. We're saved from the penalty immediately, we're saved from the power, and that's a process, and we better be making progress in that. Ultimately will be saved from the very presence of sin. This was what Christ came to do. This is the nature of the Savior. So let's look finally at the nature of the saved then. In verses 6, 9, and 10. And we want to address this question. Does a genuine Christian continue to sin? Look back at verse 6. It says, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. And verse 9, no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. Well, there are four basic interpretations of this passage. And I think it's important that we just go through them quickly and let you look at what each one says. The first interpretation of this is that these verses are saying that salvation requires perfection. Salvation requires perfection. That is false. It would be to say that if we sin at all, we're not actually saved. I have good news for you. That's not true. John said, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Paul talked about his ongoing inability to do what is right. And instead, he yields to what is wrong. So if perfection is the requirement, then Christ's whole purpose in coming was a failure because nobody is without sin. So this is not saying that we must be perfect to be saved. A second interpretation at this is that this passage is only talking about certain sins, mortal and venial sins like felonies and misdemeanors. This is a Catholic construct. The idea that there's some sins that God will just overlook, but there's others that cannot be forgiven. And so this is saying, you know, that we will not go on committing mortal sins, big ones. That's nowhere in the Bible. In fact, the Bible says if you break one command, you've broken them all. So that's just not biblical. A third interpretation is that God does not regard sin in the life of the believer. He overlooks it and treats it like it never happened. Well, that would be the antinomianism that we talked about. There's no law and God doesn't really care if you sin or not. I don't see that in scripture. Look at the early church, Ananias and Sapphira. Boom, they were judged right on the spot to send a warning to the church. Hebrews 12 tells us that, quote, in your struggle against sin, close quote, in your struggle against sin, God disciplines us like a father disciplines his son because in the end it it produces the peaceable fruit of righteousness so God doesn't act like there is no sin he sees our sin he deals with our sin he disciplines us so that can't be the interpretation the fourth interpretation one I believe is correct is that it is speaking of a practice of continual habitual sin Listen to verse 6 in the Amplified Bible. No one who abides in him, who remains united in in fellowship with him, deliberately, knowingly, and habitually practices sin. No one who habitually sins has seen him or known him. That's the Amplified Bible. And I think that it's not a word-for-word translation, but I think it captures The meaning of that passage that can be so easily lost in our English translation. Have you ever been, Thanksgiving's coming up. Have you ever been cooking in the kitchen and you burn the food? Anybody? Like you prepare a burnt offering for your family. Or worse yet, you're distracted and not only does it burn. Like you get a grease fire. And it's going on and on. There's a big difference between that and someone who is a pyromaniac. Amen. A pyromaniac goes around looking for things to burn up. Because he cannot resist the impulsive desire to start fires. That's way different. Than someone who's doing their best to cook the meal and they burn it. Or they have a grease fire. An unbeliever is one who lives like there is no law. continually, habitually, perpetually yielding to the will of the devil. You might say, yeah, but... I have a sin that I continually practice, Paul. It's become a habit. Does that mean I'm not saved? It's habitual. What well, it could mean you're not saved. It could. But my question be, would be this. What do you do when you commit that sin? How do you respond to that? What's your reaction? Is it, <laughs> can't wait to do that again. That was a blast. Or do you grieve over that sin? like David did in Psalm 51. David writes against you you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you're proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. He said, create in me a pure heart, oh God, renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and grant a willing spirit to sustain me. God, I messed up and I hate it because it hurts you. Forgive me, cleanse me. I don't want to do that again. Take away the whole desire to do that thing, Lord. I'm broken over this. That's repentance. That's what a response should be. I think Martin Luther said it best. I've I've given you this quote before. I think it's important. Sin clings to a Christian, he says. A non-Christian clings to sin. Big difference. Big difference between someone who burns a meal and a pyromaniac. Sin clings to a Christian. A non-Christian clings to sin. That's the difference so What is the nature of the saved? Does a genuine Christian continue to sin? Yes. Sadly, a genuine Christian will stumble and fall into sin. And when he does, he grieves over that sin and he confesses it and he seeks not to repeat it. Yes, he'll continue to sin, but it's not a continuous habitual pursuit. He doesn't live in lawlessness with a disregard for the law and a disregard for God. He lives to please God and not the flesh. So yes, a believer continues to sin. But no, it is not a willful, continual, habitual practice. Well, finally, verse 10 just summarizes this passage. It says, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. So this is just saying, there's only two types of spiritual children. Children of God, children of the devil. God has no grandchildren. It doesn't matter if your parents are strong believers. You have to believe yourself. It's one or the other. There's no in between. Either person is a child of God and exhibits behavior that resembles his father or he's a child of the devil and exhibits sinful nature. So wrapping up, I'm not going to go over all the points again. The PowerPoint's always on on the website and Dan will be sending out early this week the encore which will help us dive in and process and apply this more. But for some people here, this passage should serve as a stern warning. You've been playing around with sin as if it's no big deal. Kind of dancing back and forth across the line and enjoying it. You're not taking God's moral law seriously. You're probably wondering, just how much can I get away with and still be called a Christian? That's not the mindset of a believer. That's a dangerous game to play. You need to take seriously the words that say no one who is born of God will continue to willingly, continually, habitually sin. If he does, then God's seed, his spirit is not in him. And he does not have the hope of eternal life. But there's others here I know. I I interact with many of you. There's others here who are straining hard to push back against sin. You're reading, praying, asking that God would just Take away this certain sinful desire in your life. And yet, to your dismay, you stumble over it again. And you're grieved. And you're beginning to wonder, am I really even saved? Because I keep falling back into this. Well, for you, this passage should serve as a word of comfort. You need some assurance of your freedom from sin. You can have that assurance. God died to take away your sin and to purify you from all unrighteousness. And one day he will remove you and me from the very presence of sin. And we'll enjoy seeing him face to face. But for now, in our struggle against sin, we have to persevere We have to desire to do the will of the Lord. We have to pray, God, take this evil desire away from me. We have to press into the Holy Spirit and ask him for the power to say no to the devil's temptations. No matter where you are, the thing we got to know, God loves you. And he's not angry at you just waiting to destroy you. He didn't come into the world to destroy the world, but to save the world through Christ. And you know what? It's that kindness. Sometimes when I sin, I think, oh, the, Lord, the shoe's gonna drop. And there are consequences to sin. But you know what I experience over and over that just breaks my heart and has me running back to the feet of the Lord? His kindness. His kindness is what leads us to repentance. He's a good, loving father who gave his son when we were still his enemy. When there was nothing lovely in us, he loved us and he died for us. We can turn to him, no matter where we are, and we can be forgiven. We can have that sin taken away. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we confess, we admit that we are sinners. We're sinners by birth and we're sinners by choice, God. And you knew we would be. Yet, even when we were your enemies, when there was absolutely nothing lovely in us, God, you loved us and you died for us. And what an amazing love, what an amazing grace that you would come into our broken world and pay the penalty for our sin. The very hands that you created us with would be pierced by sinful men. God, you are, you are beautiful beyond anything we can imagine you're also holy and you want us to be holy you want us to be genuinely set apart for you so god i pray that for those who believe that you'd impress upon our hearts your holiness that you renew in us a desire daily to live in righteousness i pray god that you remind us that you've given us power by your spirit to say no to sin Lord, like we saw last week, we just need to behold the magnitude of your love and let that purify us, to have us running from sin and running to you. God, forgive us, cleanse us, renew us, Lord, create in us a clean heart, oh God, that we might live each day for you, for your kingdom, and for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.